Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being a part of the package when I took on more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, what I learned when I dug a little bit deeper is that I had a ton more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken, and hopefully we stumble upon some answers together. Our friend Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona is back again with a fun mixed bag of topics. Everything from why sleep isn't a bigger deal in medical school to a study that looks at a possible link between daytime sleepiness and suicide. Always plenty to learn here with Dr. Michael Grandner. Okay, so before we get started, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you how you slept last night. Um, I want to thank you, Michael, for turning me on to Jay Ellis, who <laughs> was the star of last week's show, with that remarkable study that he did where an hour of quick hit CBTI got results in 73% of patients with acute insomnia. It was fascinating interview. It was a compelling interview. It was, uh, it set a new record for first day downloads of the show because people saw the 73% number and lost their minds. So thank you for turning me on to him last week. No, thanks. Yeah. Jay is, so he's aside from being a really awesome sleep researcher and one of, one of those out there who's very creative and thoughtful, he's also just a genuinely good person. Like I, I consider him a good friend anyway. So it's nice to see it well-received. Um, and, and, and acute insomnia is this kind of thing that people don't really talk about. We talk about insomnia as sort of a chronic condition, but I mean, I think that's happening a lot around the world right now as our lives are thrown into a little bit of chaos in one way or the other. And and a lot of people are developing an, an insomnia where they didn't have one before. And I think, you know, he hit it right on the head that we know how to fix this problem. We've actually known how to fix this problem for a long time. We just haven't tried. And he tried. And it showed that all this stuff that we, we already thought would work, um, when you apply it and you target it with with a focus, it, it actually works. It knocks it out. And, and I think it's brilliant. Interesting observation that he had, and I want to check it with you. Sure. I'm not sure if you heard the entire interview. Um, to see if his perspective on this was a uniquely British perspective, <laughs> the idea that, um, as we called it in last week's episode, the stupid virus – is going to, because of its impact on things like acute insomnia, the the stupid virus is probably going to drive funding toward sleep research and making sleep data more widely available and easier to collect. Is it, Do you think that's something uh, that's an ocean away or does that resonate on your side of the ocean as well? I, I think so. I mean, right now, uh, my sense of what's going on in terms of funding for research um, the, it, it, in, in response to all the stuff that's going on, there's a couple levels. There's the one level of how do we fix this thing in terms of like vaccines and, and, and molecular biology? Like there was that study that I think I mentioned a, a few weeks ago where there was a researcher that showed that there's actually aspects of the coronavirus itself which might actually reduce pain sensitivity. Um, is that why it's asymptomatic for so long? Or, or could we learn new things about 
reducing pain by what we're learning about. This. So there's, there's the molecular biology stuff going on, but then there's also the social, environmental, behavioral, long-term real world impact. And I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface because it's like people are talking about deaths, which is, a, which is the huge, important elephant in the room outcome. But many people who are getting this and getting exposed to this are having lots of other symptoms and issues. And so you have sleep problems arising in people who who have the virus because of other other ways it's impacting their health. You have sleep problems arising in everybody else because the world is upside down. And because sleep operates at this really interesting space, um, it, it's like sleep is, is to some degree a fulcrum point um, where on one side of the seesaw is is the outside world that we live in. And the other side of the seesaw is the inside world uh, in, in our own body. And, and sleep becomes this point at which of balance between the two, or maybe that's the wrong metaphor. Maybe it's maybe sleep is the way in where where sleep is sort of how we embody the world around us, our stress, our, you know, where we are and, and what we're going through. How does that enter us? You know, it enters us biologically through our sleep. And so I think. I don't know that there's a direct intention where the funders are saying things like, you know what we need to study more of is sleep. But I think that what's going to happen is when they start funding research on things like how this is impacting health and society, sleep is going to be an elephant in the room because it's going to be related to probably all the different things they're interested in. It's going to be probably easier to measure than things like diet, which is probably as important, maybe more so, but it's really hard to measure diet in a reliable way. Um, and it's going to be related to what they care about. It's going to be predictive of what they want things to be predictive of. And it's going to be a universal experience that, that everyone will be able to relate to. And so I think that as people are going to be writing grants about this and trying to study the impact of this on society and on health and on biology and on on health systems and on healthcare workers and on fatigue and, and all these sort of things, um, it's hard for me to think of a project where sleep and circadian rhythms are not even relevant. Even in the molecular biology, you have the you have the circadian rhythms of energy metabolism inside the cell. So, it, it to me it seems like. Um, that sleep is going to be something that will that can unify uh, um, a lot of the research coming out of this. Okay, then let me throw this at you because I mean, thanks to you, I've met a whole ton of smart sleep people, but I, I keep hearing echoes of one other theme running through a lot of what people have told me, and Jay brought it up last week on the show, which was if sleep is so important in so many different ways and factors into so many different biological processes, why does it not get more attention in med school? Because I know you saw the quote that I posted on Twitter from our interview where he said that in the UK, in med school, they spend a total of about seven minutes talking about sleep. And most of that is geared towards sleep apnea. So if that's yep. the case, if sleep is so important, why aren't our GPs learning more about it? Yeah. I mean, great question. I mean, why is it the case that, that, um, I don't know. I, I, I dare any of your listeners to find another example in all of medicine where we have a medical condition as common 
as chronic insomnia, um, a that is as um, debilitating or impactful on physical and mental health as chronic severe insomnia is, uh, a treatment that works as thoroughly and is as well tested and established as CBTI is for insomnia, as, as effective, as safe, um, as frankly easy to disseminate, that is not a standard part of treatment. Um, why is it, that, and, and you know, that's just insomnia. So, I, I mean, I, I guess I think that's an important question. I think the answer is probably a dumb answer, thing, something like inertia, like it's just not on, ra it just hasn't been on radar, um, that it just, it falls between the cracks. It, it's not on the list of things to cover because it wasn't on the list of things to cover 10 years ago. Uh, and the people who are sitting in the positions of power who are deciding what are the things on the list to cover, don't think about it because they weren't trained on it either. I, I think I think there's a there's an element of inertia there, um, and and I think that you're right that the way to make change the re the way to get this out there is actually to change education. I mean, it shouldn't just be in medical schools and it shouldn't just be in clinical psychology PhD programs. Why don't you know why why isn't sleep? Uh, it, so we talk about nutrition and physical activity and health class in school. Why aren't they talking about sleeping kids where it's arguably about as important? Um, why, why do we have national guidelines on, on diet and nutrition and food groups and, and rate my plate and all these things? Why do we have these national standards for, for diet and we have national guidelines for physical activity? How much exercise should you get? But we don't have any guidelines for sleep nationally. Um, be, and why is it not in there? I think this should be in schools. I think it should be, and, and Michelle Perfect is a researcher who's been trying to put it into schools. Um, there should be um, there should be education across. It should be it should be permeating the system as much as talking about diet and nutrition were. And I say that recognizing that diet and nutrition didn't permeate through the system more than a, much of a generation ago. It's taken some time. And I think as with most things, you know, sleep is a little late to the party. Maybe it overslept. Haha. -ha. But I think that <laughs> and partially I think it's because as a field, sleep hasn't has been behind. Where, where the sleep field itself has been so focused on either a, uh, either treating a disorder or understanding basic neurophysiology that they've ignored this issue of public health uh, until maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, where, where diet and obesity research and exercise research and smoking and alcohol have been doing this since the 60s. Um, and so I think we're just a generation behind. Um, that's my that's my optimistic take is give it some time. It's starting to change. I mean, we've got people like you and, and everyone who's listening to your podcast and, and reading the book and whatever and everyone else that the conversation around sleep is changing. Um, and I think it's maybe it could happen faster, but I think it has to permeate like we have to treat sleep like we treat physical activity and like we treat diet and not just be a, have it be a thing that doctors learn about. Have it be something that's just a part of our society. But it's interesting too that um, because of shows like this one, I mean, I, there's there's a bunch of sleep podcasts out there where people can probably get ridiculously valuable information, and I'm I'm just I'm a bystander <laughs> on the sidelines, you know, looking at it and thinking it's cool. Um, but we're in a scenario where if you're getting seven minutes of education on sleep in med school, there might be people who listen to this podcast who have no connection to the medical field whatsoever that know more about sleep than their doctors do. Oh, I say and this to my patients to all the time. I say that to my patients all the time. Now you know more about this than your doctor who's prescribing your medication does. Wow. 
it well it occurs to me that at the end of the, at the end of the month the end of August, you know, there's a whole bunch of sleep nerds getting together for a virtual conference. And I feel like the why doesn't this get taught more in med school probably needs to be shoved onto an agenda somewhere because <laughs> I feel like I like if the radio DJ can come into the room and go, well, that feels weird. I, I feel like the people that run med schools at Harvard and places like that, certainly they're smart enough to have had it occur to them. No. Yeah, so you should get some of the you should get one of the Harvard people on your show. Um, they've been actually Harvard. It's funny you mentioned Harvard. The program at Harvard has been barking up this tree for a long time. Actually, they've been one of the leaders in trying to get um, how hospitals and medical schools think about sleep changed. They've been they've been one of the forefront leaders on this for years and and when you talk to, and and when you talk to some of the people there they'll tell you the stories of how they would go to the training directors and and be told you don't know you no you know sleep is you know i survived on lack of sleep and i learned more because of it and so um so I, I think telling people to sleep more, you're just giving people too much free time and you're coddling them or whatever. I don't know. There, there are all these stories about how when you would approach these training directors of these medical school programs that they were actually some of the biggest opponents to this change. Um, and maybe it's a toughness thing. Maybe it's a hazing thing. Like, I don't know. But like there was that meme going around online a bunch of months ago about like, how did it go? It's like if you say that you went through a bunch of of crappy stuff and you turned out okay, and therefore it's okay for everyone else to go through bad stuff, um, that means you, you you didn't turn out okay because now you're trying to make other people suffer for no good reason. Um, right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Like you didn't turn out fine. Like if yeah. you turned out fine, you'd want to be alleviating suffering. You wouldn't be, we wouldn't be wanting to cause suffering unnecessarily. <laughs> like, so, but I think, I think there's this attitude still of, you know, culturally we see sleep as unproductive time and there is nothing worse than feeling that you're spending unproductive time. Um, they used to be called, the reason medical residents are called residents is because they used to live at the hospital. They used to never go home. Um, yeah. But that was a different world. I mean, if you looked at the actual work done, they're probably working way harder now than they did 75 years ago when they actually lived there and never went home. It was just a different world. And I think we have to um, we have to acknowledge that 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 the world is changing and we have to either change with it or be dragged kicking and screaming. And, and maybe that's what we need. Remarkable. Okay. Okay. So enough about what's on my radar. Uh, let's get to the important stuff, the things that have uh, crossed the mind of someone who actually knows what he's talking about. So tell me about the things that have perked up your attention this week. So um, this week, uh, to be totally honest, this week I have not been in, in the literature much where I've been focusing on, you know, the training stuff I'm doing here, but then also uh, a program I'm involved with that's run out of NYU, which is funded by NIH. It's called Pride. And it's about um, sort of leveling the playing field in terms of increasing diversity in the academy among other researchers. And what this program does, which is, it's an amazing program. It's run by uh, Girardin Jean-Louis and, and Bengo Ogedegbe at, at NYU. And I've been working with them for ended up since the beginning on this. And what they what it what it does is it takes um, people who are underrepresented minorities 
of, of all kinds across the U.S. Not students. These are actual people who are assistant professors in places, sometimes teaching universities, sometimes research universities. But they have they they have a gap to fill in their sort of mentoring. They need a leg up to really jumpstart their career. And the idea is that people from different backgrounds have different scientific ideas. They look at the data and they have a different perspective, depending on where. And, and the more voices we have in the field that come from as many different places as possible, the richer the field is and the more interesting scientific questions we get. Uh, but often people from these backgrounds don't always get the same doors opened or, or legs up or or. Whatever, and so this program is all about leveling the playing field. So I've been, so I've been, had my head buried all week in in people writing, helping train people how to write their first grants, or or how to how to actually publish papers in in journals more efficiently, and and how to think about career and building an academic career and balancing stuff like that. So that's where my head's been for the past week, and and it's just been really exciting to see the, all these cool ideas that people are coming to the table with. Uh, I. I you know, seeing the drafts of some of the grants that are that these people are going to be submitting, which are amazing and fascinating ideas, looking at everything from um, new ways to think about engaging the communities in health promotion, just like we were talking about sleep health, and that this needs to be, this needs to not just be relegated to medical schools. We need to get creative in how people are incorporating sleep health in their lives. And I've seen some really cool proposals this week of grants people are working on to try and do just that. So it's been amazing. Um, but in terms of in terms of studies, I mean, there's you know the new the new issue of Sleep was posted. The the journal. I mean, we've got the the conference coming up. I've been working on a poster for that. Um, we've got a whole bunch of presentations there. But one study that jumped out to me. This week was by um, uh, was led from the the lab of a guy named Damien Leger, who's who's in Paris, and he did a study looking at um, looking at outcomes associated with lockdown and the pandemic um, in Europe, and and one of the things that was particularly interesting was. One of the things he found was was looking at the, the worst outcomes were associated with things like um, news media and screens um, in the evening being statistically more likely to lead to more problems um, and things like, um, so let's see, uh, but but exposure to the media seemed to be uh, in and of itself a better predictor than the stressful media exposure, which was sort of interesting. I would have expected to see that, you know, when you were exposed to media that was particularly frightening or, or, or negative, then that might have more of an effect, but it was just more just this overconsumption of media that looks to be an important culprit here in, in impacting sleep and daytime functioning. Um, hmm. And then, and also, you know, financial stresses and other things seem to play a role as well. But, but that was a discrepancy that I thought was particularly interesting here. And, and as more of this data comes out, it'll be really interesting to see how sleep plays a role in all this sort of navigating and emotional regulation. I mean, we've got an election coming up and, and you know, we've got a lot of people losing sleep over all kinds of things and we've got some really important decisions happening. Um, and it'll be really interesting for me to, to, to sort of observe what's happening societally in terms of how we're having these public debates about all of these really, really important issues um, in the face of people not sleeping very well and, and having all these things keeping them up at night. So 
I don't know. So I, I think I think th- this this thinking about this on a societal level is sort of where my mind's been this week. I guess is the take home. Do we get uh, any kind of a preview of the poster that you're working on for the big con for, for the big conference? Um, so actually, I, I said the poster, but we actually have a couple dozen posters from our lab. We have a lot of posters this year um, because um, one of the things I, I, I'm a big believer in engaging students in research, and every single one of these posters has a student except for a couple of them with for two of them are me, but most of them have a student as the lead author on them. And they were all ideas and projects that the students came up with. Um, um, so that there's a bunch of them. There's a lot of really cool ones. I'll give you a preview of a couple ones. Um, and maybe next time we'll talk about a few more and, and, and anyone who wants to, to see them, um, if you go to sleepmeeting.org, that's the main website for the sleep conference, um, and you look for the abstract supplement, what that is is a whole book of all of the new findings that are being presented at the conference. These are abstracts. They're 300-word summaries. Um, if you want to see all the ones from our lab, just do a Control-F for my name in there. But you'll see all of them from all over the world of all the, all the new stuff that's getting presented at the conference. Um, just take a tour. Um, and, and so like in terms of ours, like I feel bad picking one or two because a lot of them I, I think are great, but one, imp- right. It's like we're asking you, which one is your favorite kid? Right. Right. And then, and, and, you know, in more ways than one, cause these are all, these are all my students. I don't necessarily want to pick out, uh, one more than, than, than another, but there's a couple, maybe I'll talk about more next time. So I'll just talk about some of the first, um, couple even just, I don't know, alphabetically. But one, one thing that we've been looking at in particular is, um, so we've got a p- couple posters on this topic of sleep and suicide risk, where um, I think I've talked about this on the show before, where we showed nocturnal increase. So, so people who are awake in the middle of the night are more likely to commit suicide for some reason. Right. And um, so we've been diving into that. So we actually have a few posters this year on this topic. One of them showing that um, that at a population level, we were able to find some population level data showing that um, that adding that instead it, this wasn't looking at actual suicides. This was looking at suicidal thinking. And what we found was that um, that being awake at night. Um, you still see, saw, saw that increase, but actually being awake in the morning actually seemed to be somewhat protective against suicidal thinking. That wasn't in the other data set that we looked at originally, so that was sort of new, um, and that was that was led by a, a grad student, Andy Tubbs. Another project out of that was looking at um, other symptoms like um, um, daytime sleepiness and fatigue and sleep disturbance, showing that at the national level, all of those do seem to be related to um, uh, suicide-related uh, thinking. Um, so that was another student project. Um, and then we're also looking at things like, oh, there's another really interesting finding. I'll pick out one more, maybe talk about a couple more next week. Um, but this was asking the question of, so we say you're only supposed to be in, in bed for sleep. Right. And so what about what people who do other things in bed, do they sleep worse? And so we looked at all these different activities of what people do in bed. So this was um, another project led by a student, uh, Sydney, Sydney Fan. And what she looked at was um, uh, so she looked at at, at a bunch of these um, different uh, activities. And what basically what we found was. Yeah, in general, the more things you do in bed, especially if they're mentally activating, things like worrying and thinking and like all these sorts of 
mentally active activities, yeah, that's associated with worse sleep. But there was one thing that people did in bed was actually associated with better sleep. Um, and that was reading. Actually, reading in bed was a good thing. Uh, people who read in bed actually tended to sleep better than people who didn't read in bed. So that was very yep. surprising. I, I think that was the, fir the first time somebody brought that up on the show. It was Linnell Schneeberg yep. from Connecticut Children's Medical Center and Yale. Yep. Um, you know, we'll, we'll drop the Yale thing in there. That's the, it's um, Linnell. But, She's awesome. Yeah, uh, and she said um, that one of the one of the most important tools you can have to you know prop up your sleep game is a book light in a book. Yeah, you know, and so that was so. As a, I guess that's a good place to end. That's a good take home that you know maybe it's you know we don't need to be super orthodox about never do anything in bed, but at least don't do mentally engaging things in bed. And actually, there might be something good about reading. Maybe the fact that it's self paced as opposed to watching a show where you're going at its pace. Uh, maybe the fact that you need to pay attention because if you're closing your eyes, you can close your eyes and drift off while the t while the TV's going, but you can't do that while you're reading because then you can't read. Um, you need right. your eyes open to read. So like there, maybe there's there's something about that self-pacing where it's depending on you uh, to do it that maybe that's why it's an okay thing to do. Um, I don't know, but I thought that was interesting. And so maybe next time we'll talk about a few of the other student projects. I'm in. I'm in. Michael, as right, always, thanks for the time. Of course, of course. Next time. Ton of information waiting for you on our website, thesnoozebutton.com, including links where you can rate and review the show. And actually, do me a favor, if you're listening to this right now, take a second, go to thesnoozebutton.com as soon as you're able, click the button uh, that allows you to uh, support the show, and that comes in the form of rating or reviewing the show. It doesn't help people find us, but it does help people who are thinking about listening to us get an idea of whether whether or not it's worth their time. Also, links on thesnoozebutton.com to a shorter version of the same content called the Snooze Button Express. So if you're loving the stuff, but you just don't have that much time to invest in a podcast, every episode of the Snooze Button Express features the same guests. It's just the episodes are edited down to a very tight and fast pace, nine minutes. Back here again next week with another terrific guest. Until then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 